Our reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine with me, imagine this, if you will, uh, the courtroom of Daniel 2 that we find described here. Uh, the great king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has not slept well for some time now. Daniel 2 as we just heard, tells us this. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. As the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, uh, there was much to lose sleep over. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't one of those kings who was just happy to be here. That wasn't him. He had multiple military campaigns on multiple fronts. He had multiple assimilation campaigns in multiple places with multiple cultures. He was a busy man. He had an empire to build. But sleep escaped him. And, as has always been true of narcissistic totalitarian leaders, when sleep escapes them, sleep also departs from those who are closest to them. We, we can imagine uh, wine chalices being thrown, right? Generals being berated. Architects being cursed at, for yet another delay in the great Make Nebuchadnezzar Great Again project. Finally, finally, perhaps at the sheepish, sheepish suggestion of an aide, it's put forward that maybe, just maybe, we could call upon those who might be able to interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar agrees. This seems like a good idea. Babylonians, after all, are a deeply religious, deeply superstitious 
people. A, a bad dream was a bad omen in Babylon. And these things, these bad dreams, these bad omens, well, they're like infections. Best examined, lest they turn into something much more deadly, much more serious. And so Nebuchadnezzar summons them. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, they all come running. And carrying with them their potions and staffs, their books and charts. They come, perhaps still gasping for air, stumbling into the throne room of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And here, before Nebuchadnezzar stand and, and stood, the, the best and the brightest political, religious, socioeconomic advisors and trend spotters that money could buy. Here were the Harvard graduates. Here were the PhDs. And our text says, the king speaks. He says this, Daniel 2.3. I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Here's where I want us to stop this morning. I, I, I will venture to guess, and I think I'll be right in this, uh, that none of us will ever or have ever sat in a seat of power quite like the great king Nebuchadnezzar's. None of us will ever have on our plate all the responsibilities and duties that the great king Nebuchadnezzar had. None of us will oversee an empire, and none of us will be able to, at the snap of our fingers, be able to assemble quite the same group of professionals and aides that the prestigious great king Nebuchadnezzar summoned before him. But, but I love Daniel 2 for, for many reasons, and we're looking at all of Daniel 2 this morning. I, I love Daniel 2 because it begins with the great king Nebuchadnezzar, this deity, the great king. He's the king of Babylon. And immediately we see that the great king is actually just like you and I. Something is bothering him. Something is frustrating him. He just can't quite shake it. Have, have you been there before? I have. And not only is Nebuchadnezzar's problem immediately relatable, but his proposed solution is as well, isn't it? Throw some money at it. Bring before me my professionals, my psychotherapists and physiotherapists, my palm readers and political strategists. Throw some money at it. Have you been there before? Perplexed, bothered, kept up, troubled, like Nebuchadnezzar and thought to yourself, I, I know how to fix this. I'll just go shopping, right? You laugh because it's true. Or, or I know how to fix this. Two hours at the mercy of my deep tissue Swedish masseuse, right? Throw some money at it. The characters and the context are ancient. But the situation is one that has been played out since the dawn of time. In a time of confusion, no, actually, in, in a time of crisis, where, to whom, can we look for wisdom? Where can we look for, for, for help? Where can we look for answers? See, we've called our series, Living Faithfully in a Foreign Land. Living Faithfully in a Foreign Land. Because that's what Daniel's all about. 
is living faithfully in this foreign land, and, and how the heck do we do that? I'm sure you'd agree that part of living faithfully in this foreign land as exiles is learning to live wisely, right? Fred already showed us this last week in Daniel 1, right? Daniel's ability to be a faithful Israelite, a faithful Yahweh worshiper in a deeply pagan, deeply anti-God Babylonian society depended on Daniel utilizing what? Wisdom, right? Daniel has said yes to Babylonian dress. He said yes to the Babylonian haircut. He's even said yes to the Babylonian name. But Daniel says no to eating at the king's table, eating the king's food. Daniel is learning where and when to draw the lines, and and so must we. Chapter 2, then, our text for today, is going to build on this wisdom already alluded to in chapter 1. You you see, when is wisdom most most recognized as wisdom? It's not actually when things are going well. Anybody can sound wise when things are going well, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure, this, this, this. That's good advice. That sounds right. Sure. No. Wisdom is seen most clearly for wisdom. Wisdom is is proven when? In the midst of crisis. Which is exactly where we find ourselves in Daniel 2. In the midst of crisis. So here's what I want to suggest this morning. Against the backdrop of the crisis of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the needed interpretation and thus Daniel's crisis to stay alive, I want us to consider the wisdom of God we absolutely need, need, again, need to live faithfully in this foreign land. And what we'll learn cover is that very simply, the wisdom of God makes foolish the wise and wise the foolish. The wisdom of God makes foolish the wise and wise the foolish. Can we pray together? Jesus, we need you this morning. We need you to give us your spirit uh, by which we can understand and see and live rightly. Lord, as we'll see, we, we, and I I don't have the revelation in in and of myself. I I don't have the knowledge in and of myself. I don't have the ability in and of myself, Lord. None of us do. So would you help us, Lord? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you guide us this morning, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible, Daniel 2, 11, we read that already this morning. When we get to verse 11, we find uh, that the Babylonian professionals, they're in a bit of a pickle, aren't they? In a bit, in a bit of a tough spot. They've had a rough morning. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He has summoned the best and the brightest. And what they're expecting, what these professionals are expecting, is that he will, he will tell them the dream, right? Tell, tell us the dream. At which point, they can take out their books, uh, their charts, do some cross-referencing, and come to an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. Now, maybe it's because he forgot the dream. Maybe it's because he's the great king Nebuchadnezzar, and he can do whatever the heck he wants to do. Whatever the case, he he doesn't tell them the dream. And making matters worse, uh, he heightens the stakes. Uh, Daniel 2, 5 to 6, if you can look with me. The word for me is firm. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. 
if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation positively, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Don't tell me the dream and its interpretation and its dismemberment, but, but tell me the dream, gifts and glory and great honor. I see the stakes are high, but the professionals, well, they can't deliver. And then look with me at Daniel 2, 10 to 11. Because in Daniel 2, 10 to 11, they're responding to King Nebuchadnezzar. They're speaking back to him, which is no small thing in that time, right? The king speaks. You, you, you don't speak, right? You, you listen, right? Oh, yes, great King Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, live forever, great King Nebuchadnezzar. But the king's speaking. They speak back to him. And what they speak back to him is this moment of real vulnerability and honesty and transparency that we need to understand and wrap our heads around because it is so applicable to us today. Look at Daniel 2, 10 to 11. Then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, and you can picture this, right? They're exasperated. Their heads are on the chopping block, literally. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Yeah. And no one can show it to the king except the gods. And what does the biblical writer say? Whose dwelling is not with the flesh. You see, the way the diviners worked was by reading omens. Uh, these omens could be in uh, misshaped, deformed ox that were recently born. Right? These omens could be in the stars. These omens could even be in the livers of, of, of sheep. Right? They, they read omens everywhere. But, and this is so crucial, the, the pagan professionals read omens like you and I would read a book. Or like you and I would read a math equation. The pagan professionals didn't receive revelation. They just read a book. They just cross-referenced two stars. This equals this. Revelation, as we see here, can only come from the gods. And as we already heard them confess, the gods don't hang out with us. Whose dwelling is not with the flesh. These first 11 verses of Daniel 2 are intended to expose the complete failings of paganism, the complete failings of Babylonian religion in the midst of crisis, really when it matters to offer any answer or give any substance. That's what these first 11 verses are nailing home. In the midst of crisis, when the spaghetti hits the fan, when things go south, they they have no answers. Daniel 2.10, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Why? Because the gods don't hang out with us anymore. Nor did they ever. More than that, more than that, I would suggest, they're intended to expose not only the failings of paganism, but the failings of modernity, philosophy, materialism, You fill in the blank to provide us with the wisdom we desperately need, the answers we desperately seek in the face of crisis. 
the wisdom of God, oh, it makes foolish the wise. And one commentator, he writes, he, it's the biblical author, is telling Israel that there is no need to be awed by paganism, despite its trappings and splendor, for it is nothing, 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 but empty and dark. Ambiguity, loose ends, having the conversation for the sake of the conversation is all nice and swell, isn't it? Until things go wrong. When what you need is not ambiguity, but assurance. Not loose ends, but resolutions. Not a conversation, but forceful affirmation. See, Nebuchadnezzar, being the deeply religious man that he is, understood, really, the the true nature of the situation, that, that this dream has life and death implications for him. Has life and death implications. And at that moment, in the moment of this crisis, in this profound twist of irony, the man named Nebuchadnezzar, after the Babylonian god of wisdom, Nabu... He finds that Nabu and his friends are nowhere to be found. Silent. Can I press you on this a bit? Can I press you? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first off, we're so glad to have you. I hope you find this community to be a place where you can have honest and open and vulnerable conversations, where you can bring your baggage and your stuff and your questions and and, and receive genuine, heartfelt, loving answers. Part of my job, though, is at times, part of our job, part of your job, is at times to talk about things we otherwise don't want to talk about. Uh, To bring things up at dinner parties that we shouldn't bring up at, at dinner parties, to put it that way. This is one of those times. Imagine, if you will, a crisis occurring. You've lost your job. You've lost a close family member. Perhaps even your spouse. Lies, rumors spread about you. Uh, your reputation in the, in the toilet. Or maybe you don't have to work hard to imagine these things. Maybe this is your morning. This is your reality. The sun is shining out there, but it is dark. In here, in the midst of of crisis, when spaghetti hits the fan, what comfort, what hope, what strength are you offered by your core beliefs? What hope are you offered by what you believe to be true about the world? What comfort are you offered by your religion? Because we're all worshipers. We all got a religion. What comfort do your core values extend to you in your moments of greatest need? Or are your gods, like Nebuchadnezzar's, silent? No man. Gods don't hang out with us. Or maybe, if I can push this even further, maybe you're a Christian. And, and the Christianity that you got sold was a Christianity of Jesus is my friend, and he takes my life from here to here. It just makes it better, right? You got your job thing going. You got your family thing going. Jesus will fill this little spiritual hole for you, right? right? Just be a holistic, rounded out kind of person. 
And then when the, when the spaghetti hits the fan, when, when, when crisis comes, you say, well, hold on, Jesus. I thought if I did this, right, if I thought I put you in this hole, right, you would fill this part, right? Is, wasn't that the deal? Wasn't that what I bought? Wasn't that what I signed up for? The wisdom of God makes foolish, foolish, foolish the wise. But, and good news, good news, the wisdom of God makes wise the foolish. Nebuchadnezzar, just like you and I, he doesn't respond well to hearing that his professionals have, have no real answers for him, that his worldview is debunked, is, is empty, is, 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 is hopeless. So he makes a decree, right? A pronouncement that all wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And this includes Daniel and his other exilic friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so what does Daniel do? Well, naturally, as one does, Daniel goes and confronts Arioch, who is the person charged with killing him, right? That's not what I'm doing. I'm running. I'm finding a cave. I'm spending the rest of my days in that cave. No, no. Daniel goes to Arioch, this chief executioner. And, and, and again, we see Daniel's favor at play here, don't we? Arioch tells Daniel what this decree is really about. He tells him about the dream and the inability of the professionals to answer said dream. And not only does Daniel find favor with Arioch, that he has an audience with the person tasked with killing him, but in verse 16 it says, And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time, that he might show the interpretation to the king. Oh, you want to kill me? Let me just book an appointment with you. Right? This, This is what's happening. Daniel goes home. He makes the matter known to his exilic friends. And they begin to pray. Daniel goes to sleep. Daniel receives a vision that interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Again, God gives, God reveals to Daniel the vision. And so he worships, right? Verses 20 to 23, if you look there in your Bibles with me, 20 to 23 is Daniel responding in in, in worship. He's responding in worship. And from there, Daniel goes in to see Arioch again. He tells Arioch he's he's got this interpretation. And so Arioch brings him before King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar he's got the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar asks how. Daniel says, God gave it to me. And that brings us from verse 12 to verse 30. See, if verse 1 to 11 are telling this one story of the complete and utter failing of worldly wisdom, then verses 12 to 30 are telling the other story. The counter story, where wisdom, if it's not found here, is found here. See, the wisdom of God makes foolish the wise, but the wisdom of God also makes wise the foolish. And overwhelmingly, this is the point of Daniel 2. This is the point. A one commentator, he did a little math for us. And in Daniel 2's original language, this is the language of Aramaic, you find the verb reveal six times. Six times. Reveal, 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 reveal. You find the verb to show or declare ten times. You find the verb to make known ten times. Reveal six times. Uh, To show, declare ten times. To make known ten times. That's if the biblical writer wants us to see something. Right? God reveals. He makes known. He shows. He, he, He declares. 
all of these verbs pointing to the truth that Daniel expresses to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28. What is that truth? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Again and again and again. This is the point of Daniel 2. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who gives us, who gave Daniel wisdom, who reveals to us the true nature of things. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are to live faithfully in a foreign land, especially in the midst of crisis, you know we need this wisdom. So what does it look like? Firstly, notice its, its source. When Daniel hears about the king's dream, he, like he also would have been trained, he, he doesn't go and consult the books or the charts or the graphs or, or the livers of, of the sheep, Right? Where does Daniel go? In verse 18 it says that Daniel went home and he went home to his friends and it says he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Just as God gave Daniel into exile, right? That severe faithfulness we saw last week. Just as God gave Daniel favor in the court and gave Daniel learning and skill, so too does once again here we see God provide mercy, give mercy to Daniel and his friends in the form of an interpretation, in the form of wisdom. All of us, all of us need external revelation. And not just to, to, to enter the kingdom of God, not just to, to, to come in to the kingdom of God, but to actually exist and, and, and function in the kingdom of God as exiles. We need this external revelation, right? And if you remember a couple of weeks back, in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, Norm talked about this, right? He, he said, as Christians, we do things differently, don't we? Relationships, rest, work. Celebration, right? how we understand human sexuality. These are, these are all different. We understand these things differently, right? And he pointed us to 2 Timothy 3.16. How do we learn how to do these things differently? How do we know how to do these things differently? It's the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. Listen, I'm a continuationist. And what that means is I'm a person who believes that the Holy Spirit still does works and signs and wonders among us today. That he lives in me and gives us gifts and abilities for the good of the church to the glory of God. I'm, I'm a continuationist. But sometimes I wonder... I wonder if, if, if we're, we're more prone, more inclined to sort of lean back and just think to ourselves, oh, we'll just get a dream, just get a vision. No, I'll just wait on God for this, right? All the while, he has revealed himself to us in his word. Do we know what we possess in the scriptures? Do we know that we have this external revelation centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ in the scriptures? Do, do we know that? And, and if we did know that, would we live into that differently? Again, two weeks ago, I preached on Ephesians 6. While Norm was, was here, I was preaching on Ephesians 6 back at Christ City, South Vancouver, talking about uh, the armor of God in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, we find this phrase that you're probably familiar with, right? The sword of the Spirit, right? 
in exile, we're going to need some weapons, aren't we? Aren't we? We have the word of God, the good news of Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. And when we meditate upon that, when we enjoy that, we are able to wield the spirit like a sword, Paul tells us. Uh, Breaking chains, giving liberating, life-giving truth. See, God makes the foolish wise. God makes us wise as we encounter him in in his word. But, But secondly, and don't skip over this, notice the context in which this wisdom is found. See, Daniel isn't um, like a caricaturized man. And what I mean by that is like he's not the guy who's like, just like, don't feel anything. Just put, push it down and just put you know, the lid on that and nothing bad will happen because of that, right? That will turn out great for you, right? Just have a couple more beers and just don't talk about your feelings, right? Daniel's not the caricaturized man, right? He's not going back to his friends and being like, hey, Daniel, what happened? Oh, d- don't worry about it. I don't want to talk about it today, right? I'm going to go to the gym. No, he's not, he's not like that, right? Nor, nor is Daniel a whiner. He's not a baby. He's not going to his friends and like crying out to God, this is so unfair. Why? Right? Ugh. He's not a caricaturized man. He's not the stoic, nor is Daniel a whiner. Rather, we read this. The biblical writer tells us rather matter-of-factly, in verse 17 to 18, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Maybe you missed this in the first week, but the term exile, like in its like definition, is inherently lonely. Exile is lonely. Exile is isolating. But exile is is doubly lonely and doubly isolating when we choose to strike out on our own, isn't it? When we don't have exilic friends like Daniel did to go before God in in, in prayer with. People to whom we can make the matters of our heart, the matters of our life known to. One commentator, he said this. Daniel was able to stand before the king alone, because he's alone, right? Exile's lonely, because he had knelt before God with his friends. Man. Do you have true friends? And maybe I get emotional over this, because there have been seasons of my life where I haven't had true friends. We need true friends. I need, tr- this is not me inviting you to be my friend right now. Well, you can be if you want. How about I'm an introvert, so I don't need that many. Just kind of hedging my bets here. <laughs> Do you have true friends? Not friends who tell you to suppress it. Just be a stoic, man. Just suck it up. I don't want to hear about it. Nor are they friends who just let you sort of whine and, and be a baby all the time, but, but call you out on your junk. On your crap. Some of you have been my true friend. God makes us wise in his word, but God makes us wise, us foolish people, in the context of spiritual friendships. Third, third, 
noticed how this wisdom is lived out. How is this wisdom lived out? Daniel has received mercy, right? This, this, this interpretation, right? we're told it's, it's mercy. He's received mercy. A mercy he sought in, in community amongst friends. And now Daniel, who is the exile from Judah, stands before the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And maybe this makes sense to you, but I can't help but wonder, at the beginning of all of this, of Nebuchadnezzar's restless nights, at the frantic scrambling of the court to appease him, the decree to kill all the wise men, I I can't help but wonder if anybody could have ever foreseen that Daniel, at the end of all of this, Daniel, the exile from Judah, would be standing before the great king Nebuchadnezzar with an answer. What an opportunity. What a position to be in. And the question is now, given the opportunity, how will Daniel speak? And here I think we have much to learn about speaking wisely as exiles in a foreign land. Notice, first off, that Daniel is respectful, right? He, he calls Nebuchadnezzar, what? King of kings. Now, he's not saying this as like a term of worship or in term of like endearment. He's not buttering up to him. He's saying, like matter of factly, you are a king over other kings, right? It's a term of respect. But notice, though, Daniel doesn't begin like the pagan professionals did. What, what do they say? Oh, king, live forever, right? He, he maybe went to school with some of those people, right? Oh, teacher, you're the best. I got you an apple, right? May you live forever. You didn't hear that in your school? Neither did I. See, Daniel shows respect. Shows respect. He doesn't post on Facebook. Can you believe what this pagan moron is up to? What an idiot. Seriously, what is he and what are his people thinking? Of course they don't have an interpretation of these dummies. Daniel doesn't go on cable news. He doesn't take this opportunity of weakness, of vulnerability to go on cable news and say, what stupid ideology, stupid people, right? They're dumb. They don't get it. How could you ever think that? He's respectful. He's respectful. But neither does Daniel cower before Nebuchadnezzar. You see, Daniel, in his time of of, of prayer and worship, has already reminded himself of a great theological truth, hasn't he? Look at Daniel 2, uh, verse 21. Daniel says this about God, as he's worshiping God, as he's lifting God high, as he's preparing to go out before the king. He says this, God, he, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He, that's God, Not Nebuchadnezzar gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. See, this time of worship and prayer and correct theological reflection on who God is and the beauty of who God is naturally leads into Daniel's life. Because Daniel will say to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, You, O king, the king of kings, right, being respectful. Then what does he say? What does he say? Like in the same breath, he he, he strikes his tension. It's amazing. You're the king of kings. I respect you. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory. Daniel says to the greatest leader of the greatest superpower of all time, take a look around you. 
survey all you have, your land, your animals, your wives, your great culture and learning, all of it, God has given it to you. He's given it to you. Now there is so much that could be said about striking this tension of respect and boldness and I would encourage you as you go to community groups this week, talk about this. How do we do this well at our jobs, in our homes, amongst the people of God even? But for the sake of time, we've got to move on because see, the, the real point of Daniel 2 is not what leads up to uh, verse 31, but, but verse 31, the, the dream, isn't it? In verse 31, we find a dream. And in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar and now Daniel, they've seen a statue, a great image. And it's a strange statue at that. Its head made of gold. Its chest and arms made of silver. Its belly and thighs made of bronze. Its legs made of iron. And its feet, curiously, made of iron and clay. And then they, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, They both see a stone, a stone, we're told, cut out by no human hand. It's striking the feet of the statue and the whole statue, the whole thing imploding, becoming like chaff and being blown away in the wind. Daniel 2.35, then this happens. But the stone that struck the image became what? A great mountain filled the whole earth. And it's this dream a dream they have both now seen, to which Daniel gives this interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, you are the gold head. And you can imagine him kind of setting up a little bit more straight. I am the gold head. That's right. And a kingdom that will come after you? Well, that kingdom is a silver chest. Yeah, silver is less, and it's kind of you know, lower here. Like, okay, I'm, I'm good with this so far. This is a good dream. And, and a kingdom that will come after that one is the bronze torso. Again, this is getting better for Nebuchadnezzar. I'm still the gold head. Uh, the iron legs, also a strong kingdom. But notice, a disunified kingdom. Hence, iron and clay. And the stone? The stone? Well... That's what this is really all about, Daniel says. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This rock, this stone, whatever you want to think about those other kingdoms, not really what this dream is about. This rock This stone is the kingdom of God. It's not a kingdom of human devising or scheming or building. What? Cut out by no human hand. It does not come to destroy and pillage the earth so that we might escape the earth. No. Rather, it became a great mountain and filled the earth. Creation renewed. And just as a stone grew and became a great mountain, so too will the kingdom of God like a tiny mustard seed, grow and become a large tree in which all types of people can find rest and shelter. And it's a mountain. It's a mountain. Nebuchadnezzar might have been happy with his gold head, but the kingdom of God is a mountain. It's not a stupid gold head. It's not a stupid silver chest not even iron legs. It's a mountain. It's a mountain that fills the whole earth. 
indestructible, everlasting, eternal. It's a mountain. But we must not miss, we must not miss, or we, we can never miss, that this mountain that fills the whole earth, that is indestructible and eternal, begins how? How does it begin? With just a stone cut out by no human hand. This phrase, cut out by no human hand, is meant to emphasize sort of the fragility, the, the, the weakness, the obscurity of this stone. In Luke 20, it's a bit of a leap here, in Luke 20, when the religious leaders, the powerful, those in control, dismiss Jesus, say, get out of here, Jesus. We doubt you are who you say you are. He tells a parable. Jesus tells him a parable. And in the parable, Jesus likens his rejection to those who would reject, rebuff, a vineyard owner's own son. Even though Jesus, or rather the son, is the rightful heir, the son is rebuffed, reviled, rebuked, killed. And so Jesus says in Luke 20, won't then, in light of this, because of this, won't then the owner come, destroy the wicked tenants, and give it to the others? And when the religious leaders reply, shocked at such an idea, shocked that God would act in such a way, Jesus, he's quotes, he quotes Psalm 118 and says, but he looked directly at them. This isn't meek and mild Jesus of our, you know, little figurine kind of thing happening here. This isn't Jesus who fits in my pocket anymore. But he looked directly at them and said this, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. And then Jesus alludes to what appears to be part of Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2, our text this morning, and says this. Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Friends, Jesus is that small, obscure stone who through his death and resurrection has shattered and overpowered and overcome every earthly kingdom and every earthly authority. It's Jesus. Jesus is the small stone. Jesus is the stone that ushers in the kingdom greater than Babylon. A gold head, a mountain. A kingdom that will not end. A kingdom that is sure and steadfast. It's Jesus. Jesus is the stone. See, the wisdom of God makes foolish the wise and wise the foolish. But, but the question we need to ask here in exile is how? 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 This is, this is, how? When the foolish, you and I, maybe just me, people like us, when the foolish grab hold of the wisdom of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, when we choose to put the cross of Jesus at the center of all of our thinking, at the center of how we understand reality, at the center of how we understand our decisions, and how we understand rest and celebration and human sexuality. Isn't this what Paul says? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul knew. Daniel knew. True wisdom, ultimate wisdom that makes sense of the nature of reality, not just of the past, not just of the present, but of the future. True wisdom is not in books and charts and graphs and sheep's livers. It's not in modernity. It's not in French philosophers. It's not in ability to read the stock market. It's not in the latest self-help book. Paul knew that. Daniel knew that. But where? Where? Where is true wisdom found? True wisdom is found in relationship with God, now made possible by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Where is true wisdom found? It's in our union with Christ. That's where true wisdom is found. You see, Paul will continue to say in 1 Corinthians, in this section that's all about comparing earthly wisdom and, 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 and spiritual true wisdom, he'll say that now, united to Jesus, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. By his Holy Spirit, what? We, ha- we have the, the, the mind of Christ. We have the mind and the tools and the weapons we need to live faithfully and wisely now as sojourners, as strangers, as exiles in a foreign land. Jesus gives us that. So for us to live wisely now, for us to faithfully live in a foreign land, we must be united to him. We must always recall and apply our union with him. It's only in remembering our union with Christ that we can see the complete failing of worldly systems and charts and methods to answer the toughest, toughest questions in the midst of crisis. It's only in remembering that we've been united to Christ that we can see how to live today. Meditating on His Word. Full of His Spirit. In the context of His church. It's only in remembering our union with Christ that that we're we're with Jesus. We're with Him. That That we can stave off discouragement as exiles in Babylon. Knowing there is coming a day There is coming a day when that mountain will fill the whole earth. When Jesus will return and usher in a kingdom that is unshakable. A kingdom not made by human hands, cut out by no human hands, but God's kingdom. That's good news. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.